it's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, are there secrets to studying the Bible? If God loves humanity and His Word has the only keys to everlasting life, then why is the Bible so hard to understand? What do we need to learn in order to study the sacred book in a way that can help us unfold and reveal God's actual Word and will? Is biblical understanding within our reach? Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome everyone, I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. It's always a blessing. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? 2 Timothy 2, 15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. The Bible is a complicated book. It's a book of many books written in several languages over more than 1,500 years by the hand of about 40 individuals. It contains history, prophecy, as well as spiritual, moral, and legal guidance. Its content is relayed in the form of historical records, in letters, in proclamations, and in symbolic and metaphorical language. Some teachings are in story form. Some are illustrated by example, and others are expressed by way of rigid law. The Bible contains catchy phrases, exaggeration, long genealogies, and profound truth. Intertwined in all of this is the Word of God and the message of His divine plan for all ages, for all humanity. So, where does one start? How does one start to find a way to understand what the Bible is saying? And this is a big challenge because the Bible is such a difficult book. God did promise help to understand it for those whom he called to follow Jesus. And we know that in John chapter 14, verse 26. Jonathan, let's go there to get started. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, it will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I said to you. So with the Holy Spirit, that's an interesting point, but why not just pick up the book, start with Genesis, and over time, work your way to the end of Revelation, you know, like a normal book? (laughs) Because the Bible is not a normal book. And this is why it's so important to back up and look at it with, with different eyes than we would any other book, because it is God's will unfolded in a way that is supposed to be mysterious. And that's why having the Holy Spirit as part of this is really, really important, and it is a tremendous basis for understanding. So if you're looking at the Bible saying, hey, I just want to figure this book out because maybe I don't like it and I want to figure it out to disprove it, you're not going to be able to figure it out. It's not going to make sense to you. It is God's Spirit that helps to unlock the many facets of the Bible, and we're going to see many of these facets unfold as we go through this. So no, Julie, this is not the kind of book you just read and expect to get. It, 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 will, it will teach you for the rest of your life if you know how to read it and comprehend it. And that's what we're going to go over today. Profitable Bible study begins with knowing the context of what we're reading. So let's look at some context-identifying questions that might be helpful. So, Jonathan, first context-identifying question. 
Who is being addressed? All right. Who? Is it a person? Is it a group? Is it a nation? Is it the world? Julie, next question. What kind of message is it? So who and what? What kind of message? Is it historical? Is it instructional? Is it character growth? Is it doctrine? Is it a warning? Is it encouragement? What kind of message? What's next? When is the message being spoken? So what are the surrounding events? Does timing matter in the way the message and the words that are being spoken is put out there? What's next? Who, what, when, where? Where is the message meant to be applied? Is it geographically sensitive? Is the message applied to the land of Israel and no place else? Or is there something bigger than that? What else? Why is the message being given? Is the message being given for immediate use? Is it for future use? Is it prophetic? Or is it all of the above? And what's the last one, Julie? How is the message being delivered? Is it literal or is it symbolic language? Is it a story or is it factual? So you've got these aspects that, that we, we all have a sense of who, what, when, where, why, and how. Bible study is a worthy commitment, and our CQ Kids series of short animated videos can help answer important questions for both kids and adults. At christianquestions.com slash YouTube, two great titles to watch are what's the best way to study the Bible and how is the Bible organized? And so as we go through this podcast today, are there secrets to studying the Bible? We're going to give you, it's a basic tutorial to give you an idea of the ways to go about studying the Bible. This is not going to be comprehensive. We're going to touch on many, many different things. And let's begin with this. The idea that profitable Bible study is very revealing when it's done topically. Well, hold on, Rick. This is what we do every week at Christian Questions. You know, our tagline is, think about the Bible like you never have before. And part of that is deeply exploring specific topics. Right. So topical Bible study is an important thing. A topical study seeks understanding by focusing on a subject in the Bible rather than a specific part of the Bible. So an example of this would be what sounds like a simple question about salvation. The question, what must I do to be saved? And we're actually going to look at that question later on in the podcast and do a little bit of a case study on that specific question, what must I do to be saved? So how do you get to an answer to that? Well, a scripturally accurate answer, not just an opinion, but a scripturally accurate answer to that question, as well as any other question, will only be determined by knowing context, as we discussed, as well as being aware of how the Bible is written. And when you say context, there's context in relation to other scriptures, but also the literal context in relation to the people and the culture of the time it was written. Bible commentaries can help, but we recognize that different commentators have their own doctrinal biases, but still it's a good resource. And I personally like to use biblehub.com to see uh, all the different translations at once and many Bible commentaries. So doing a lot of comparison, this is not the kind of thing where you're going to read and say, oh, okay, I get it now. It's the kind of thing where you read it and you study and you dig deeper to gain an understanding because we're trying to understand God's word and God's will, not our own feeling about something. So if you really want the answer to this question, again, the question, what must I do to be saved? Then there are three basic things we need to learn when reviewing scriptures from different parts of the Bible. What do the words really mean? Number one. Okay, Julie, what's next? The second question would be, what is the chronological timing? This is really important to the verses that I'm reading in relation to the question that I'm asking. All right. So what do the words mean? What's the chronological timing of those verses? And what's the third question? Am I reading symbolic language or literal language? 
These are three basic, basic questions along with context that help us unfold the message of the Bible. Let's go to examples of these three, starting with number one. What do the words really mean? Let's use our theme text as an example, 2 Timothy 2, 15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Okay, now that's a scripture many of us have read many, many, many times. And we're going to use this as an example of understanding what the words really mean. But first, let's just set the context. This is simple. The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy from prison with this message of instruction and warning for Timothy to apply and then to teach. Paul is going to die soon, and he's handing many serious responsibilities over to this young disciple, Timothy, who will be called upon to lead. That's the context of what's happening in these verses. So now we want to go and begin to understand these verses by understanding some words. Let's look individually at some of the key words in that text. On Christian Questions, we state the definition of the original Hebrew or Greek. To get that, we use Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible, easily found online and in hard copy print. For example, be diligent to present yourself. This word translated from Greek to English as diligent is assigned a Strong's number. In this case, it is 4704. We use the number to look up the Greek word. And let me try to pronounce it, spudadzo. And its definition is to use speed, that is, to make effort be prompt or earnest. We include this kind of information in the weekly CQ Rewind show notes for each episode. And many of our listeners use the rewinds as part of their personal or group Bible study because we've really taken all the notes for you. And also look for the episodes that include our one-page study questions that we can use to really dive into the material. And they're at the end of the CQ Rewind show notes or at christianquestions.com to the left of the audio player for each episode. So we, we take a look at the word, and in the King James Version, it says study to show yourself approved unto God. In the New American Standard Bible, it says be diligent. So there's different words used, and so we want to understand the depth of it. So one way to do that is to look at other, other times that that word is translated in the Scriptures. Jonathan, let's look at two specific examples here. The first is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Same book, just a couple of chapters later. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. So Paul is feeling very alone. He desperately wants Timothy to come. So he's not saying to Timothy, hey, you know, if you can get around to it, maybe you want to take a, take a minute and visit. He's like, please come. Do thy diligence to come unto me. Paul also uses this word in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. That's one of the primary doctrines of the Christian church when we look at this, what we're called to do. So this word for diligence has a lot of depth to its meaning. So, so Jonathan, when we look at this word, what, what deeper understanding do we gain by defining the word for diligent here and viewing other uses of it? Well, Rick, this word is intense. The words for use speed indicate urgency, and the words to make effort, don't be lax, get off the couch, or be prompt and sincere. Wow, I thought the word just meant diligent. Yeah, and, and, and that's part of doing a word study, is it gives you a real strong sense of what's really there. Let's look at another word, the word for workman. Jonathan, what is it? A toiler. 
Okay, that's it, huh? <laughs> Just that's it. Somebody <laughs> works hard. A toiler. All right, again, let's look at some other uses to expand the meaning. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 uses that word, but it's translated differently. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And Rick, that word laborers is the same word for toiler. So it's the people who are going out there to get their hands dirty, to work really hard. It's, it's that physical labor. Second Corinthians eleven thirteen is another use of that word. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And work that, Rick, that word workers is the same as toiler. So here you have deceitful toilers that are transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ stay far away from them. So those couple of other uses of the word, along with the definition, to be a workman that needs not to be ashamed gives us a deeper understanding. So, so Julie, when you listen to this verse and the definition and these other uses— what do you gain by defining this word for workmen and, and these other verses? How does it make it bigger for you? Well, it tells me that be diligent like a workman. This isn't just a casual show up on Sunday kind of Christian. You know, this is someone actively working towards being acceptable to God. And it's scary to think that there are these false apostles working very hard to pervert the scriptures. So we need to redouble our efforts so that they don't catch up. Right. So work hard, be diligent. You're seeing the intensity of those words. The next word we want to look at in this simple verse is accurately handling. There's, those two words are translated from one Greek word, accurately handling the word of truth. What does accurately handling mean? To make a straight cut, that is figuratively, to dissect, expound correctly. So now, interestingly, we always look at other uses of a word. This is the only time this particular word is used in the Bible. Okay, trivia question. Okay. What's the term used when a word is used only once in literature, including the Bible? It means it's only used once. <laughs> but the <laughs> word for that, there's a thing, people study this and, and count them, hapex legamenon. It's a Greek meaning, and it's, it means being said once. And this can happen in both the Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament Greek. And in Hebrew, this sometimes happens because the word's meaning is unknown. So at that point, translators do their best to apply an appropriate meaning based on other sources, or they guess based on the context. So the word being used once, there's a special word for it. Don't ask me to repeat it because I can't. Uh, but the Apex point is, <laughs> it gives us a sense, okay? So this word literally means to make a straight cut. So Jonathan, when you look at this word in the context of this verse, what deeper understanding do you get by understanding accurately handling? Well, Rick, uh, it says to make a straight cut. It, it's like a carpenter's rule, which is measure twice, cut once, hmm. so it's straight. Uh, when we dissect words, we break them down and analyze them. Then after we do all of that, we have to properly communicate that meaning to others, expounding correctly. So when we now read, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, there's a bigger meaning here than appears. Understanding the words is a big deal. So Jonathan, as we go through this, we want to, we want to touch on Bible study secrets revealed. What's the first point here? Learning to ask the right questions is a valuable tool to help us find the right answers. Establishing a clear understanding of context and the modern meaning of ancient words gives us a foundation to build upon. So getting the understanding helps to build a foundation. Learning what the Bible is really teaching will not happen by accident. 
we need to truly desire its meaning. If we are aware of context and the meaning of words, how do we figure out when timing matters? Biblical timing can be tricky because things written at the beginning of the Bible can have a huge meaning regarding what is happening even today. So to understand the timing in Scripture is to understand that God's plan was always in place and has been unfolding in stages from the very beginning. And, and I just, just want to highlight that point. To understand the Scriptures is to understand that God's plan was always in place, and it has been unfolding in stages, different stages, from the very beginning. So the question we need to ask is, am I dropping in on a formative, destructive, or reconstructive stage? Ah, That's a good, good question. So we're exploring three questions, three main questions to ask when studying the Bible. And the first was the obvious place to start. What do the words mean? The second is, what is the chronological timing of the verses I'm reading in relation to the question I'm asking? So let's start with a set of scriptures that divides Bible teaching into three major time frames. And for more on this, we recommend listening to episode 844, Can We Know the Mind of God Part 2? Just go ahead and type the episode number 844 in the search bar at christianquestions.com or the Christian Questions app. And, and folks, as we go through this next scripture, this is, this is a real key scripture, because if you, if you understand what it's saying, it helps us to see the breadth, the bigness of God's plan. 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to start with the latter part of verse 5 and read through verse 7. By the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And Rick, going on to verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So when you read these verses carefully, there are sh they are showing us three different worlds that have, will, and will all exist on this earth, but never at the same time. Three different worlds. It's talking about three worlds. That's what these verses are showing about. So what we can see here is that these worlds, we can look at them and say, okay, there was this world that was, this present world, and this future world. We can look at these as consecutive dispensations of time. And what's a dispensation? That's a new word for some. It's a system of order, especially as, it, as existing at a particular time. And this is important because some scriptures apply only in the context of a certain time frame. So I kind of picture this as three arcs from left to right with what Jonathan just read about, the world that then was, the one that was before the flood, the present evil world that we're in right now, and a future time of the kingdom described as the new heavens and a new earth. And these graphics are going to be in the CQ Rewind show notes this week, so you can always follow along while you listen to every archived episode. So let's actually define these uh, these these uh, these worlds, these dispensations. The, the first dispensation, the world that was. It's the shortest of the three worlds, if you will, and it is very easily defined. It begins with one man created in perfection. Jonathan, let's go to Genesis 2-7. That the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The clock 
for our chronological understanding of the Bible begins at the creation of man, because it really is the history of mankind that is chronicled through the scriptures. Well, this first world comes to an end in a very, very recognizable fashion. It ends with one righteous man, Noah, and his family with the flood, Genesis seven twenty-three. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. So the first dispensation, the world that was, is very short. It begins with Adam and ends with a flood. That is covered in Genesis chapter 2 and ends with Genesis chapter 8. Okay, so you have just six chapters. Now, interestingly, it's about 1,600 years, but still it's just six chapters of the Bible. So now let's jump to this second dispensation, the second orderly situation, the present evil world as Peter described it. And this present evil world has three distinct parts to it, three distinct ages. It's a little bit more intricate, uh, beginning with God's dealing with individuals and then with family lines. So what do we mean by that? Well, this second dispensation, this present evil world after the flood, begins with the age of what we call the patriarchs. Now, these patriarchs are the—it's the age of the honored fathers who would take the word of God and the will of God and bring it to the people. So this is the age of individuals that God chose to work with. Genesis 8.20 points out the very first one of this age. Go ahead, Jonathan. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So we start with Noah because he's the the first individual in this new age, and he is the one that God is depending on. Let's jump now to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to introduce another name that's very familiar to everybody. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. So there's this thing about being a blessing, and he's talking to Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham. Everybody knows Father Abraham. Of course, we all know that Abraham had the son, his son Isaac. Isaac had his son Jacob. Jacob then had 12 sons. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Those 12 sons were then called the 12 sons of Israel, which became the 12 tribes of Israel, which became a whole nation. So you see that you have these patriarchs. You have Noah as an example, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God dealing with these individuals. That's what this patriarchal part of this present evil world was made of. But the age of the nation of Israel began to change things. And when we look at this age of the nation of Israel, we can refer to it as the Jewish age, the the age where the Jewish faith was the primary focus of God's developing his plans with the world. And this age, uh, it began with Jacob's deathbed blessing to his sons, who became a promising nation, as we read in the previous verse, this promising nation of blessing. This is a good place to pause with an example of how we can get the wrong interpretation if a scripture meant for one period of time is arbitrarily applied to the wrong time frame. So in the early church in the New Testament, some of the biggest arguments were whether or not certain Jewish rituals like circumcision and forbidding of certain foods still applied in Christianity. And as a modern example, Christian churches today that promote mandatory tithing pull scriptures that applied back during this Jewish age you're talking about, and they incorrectly say that it still applies during the time period of the gospel message that comes after this Jewish age. So for more on that topic, search episode 
1040, do tithes and offerings belong in Christianity? And it is really important to understand the timing of scriptures is critically uh, important to, to knowing what the Bible really says. We can create what we want the Bible to say, or we can listen to the Word of God and the will of God. You choose. But if you're going to choose to listen to the Word of God and will of God, you have to put things where they belong in Scripture and not decide to change them for your own benefit. So now let's take a look at this age of the nation of Israel, this Jewish age. Let's take a look at just a few Scriptures here. Exodus 19, 5-6. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So you've got the chronological timing having to do with the physical nation of Israel being laid out plainly and simply right there. You're going to be this kingdom of priests. You're going to be a holy nation. That's you. Amos chapter 3 verse 2 verifies this. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And we know how many times Israel was punished and through history. We see it in, 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 in scriptures in the Old Testament. So we're following the chronolo- chronological timing of verses. We have to understand that certain verses apply to certain times. The end of this time, the end of this favor, this Jewish age, this, this time of favor to the Jewish nation, was proclaimed by Jesus with a very sad announcement of failure in Matthew 23, 38 and 39. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you know, that last phrase, you, you, you will not, I will say to you, you will not see me until you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is actually a hint about the beginning of the third dispensation. We're going to get to that in just a, in a few minutes. So far, we've discussed the patriarchal age and the Jewish age in this second dispensation, which we called the present evil world. This is found in Genesis chapter 9 and goes all the way through the entire Old Testament. But we're not finished yet. That's right. In the New Testament now, we have the age of the Christian call. It's the age of the gospel, the good news. And we call this the gospel age because it is, it is focused on the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we know that that gospel was preached first to the Jewish nation, but then afterwards it was opened up to Gentiles as well. We know that from Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. And of course, this is the conversion of Cornelius, a very dramatic event that opened up the gospel to people outside of the favored nation of Israel. So the culmination of the call of the gospel is summed up in a simple scripture in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So now in this time period, when the call of the gospel message goes out, for the very first time, a way has been opened to receive life in heaven. Rewards of faithfulness in the Old Testament we know were largely physical, tied to land, family, physical prosperity. But the Christian reward for faithfulness is spiritual, and it involves a walk of sacrifice. There's this huge paradigm shift in the call, the pathway to walk, and the reward. So here's another example of where all scriptures don't apply in all time periods. That so-called prosperity gospel that we hear about today picks out scriptures about the Old Testament's physical rewards 
tries to apply them here to the gospel age of Christianity, which is the opposite of the path Jesus described. Conversely, this is how we can deduce that no one who lived in the Old Testament is in heaven. They're in their graves awaiting an earthly resurrection. The New Testament promises can't arbitrarily be applied into the previous time frame. So you understand the timing of the scripture and you begin to understand the will and the mind of God. You don't understand the timing of the scriptures, the understanding the will and the mind of God is going to go right past you. So it, it takes it takes quietness, it takes clarity, it takes working, and you know what? It really does take God's spirit to help us with this. So this present evil world that we're talking about, this present dispensation of, of, of evil, ends in a very dramatic way. It, it, it ends with the completion of the call of true Christians, as Julie was talking about, and it ends with trouble, lots of trouble, and that was prophesied in Daniel 12, verse 1. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book, will be rescued. Well, the gospel age is still in the second dispensation. And that starts at the beginning of the New Testament and goes all the way through parts of Revelation. So if you think about it, the second dispensation covers the majority of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. It does. So you, you, this present evil world has got a lot going on, but within it, there are different things happening at different times. You can't take the patriarchal stuff and apply it to the Christian stuff or to the Jewish stuff. So we have to be careful. That's the thing about studying the Bible. Are there secrets? No, there's not secrets, but there is a method and an understanding of how the Bible is broken out. Let's take a quick look at the third dispensation. That's the world to come. That's yet in the future. This is the age where the Messiah actually rules. So we call it the Messiah ruling age or the Messianic age. Everybody will be under Christ, the Messiah. First, uh, and it has this age will have two distinct parts that we know of. First, it's the great day of judgment for all those who are not the called of God. Now, the called of God have gone to heaven, but this great day of judgment is something different. John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, resurrection of judgment means a resurrection of of accountability. That's really what it's focusing on. And Jeremiah 21, 29 to 30, is also part of this part of the world to come, this reconciliation part, this part of judgment. Jeremiah 31, 29 to 30. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. So again, this is an age of accountability and it's an age of reconciliation because this is the way, the pathway back to God for the rest of the world. The, the true church, they've already got their pathway. They're already in heaven. They've already been given a reward, but this is the everybody else. And to understand how Judgment Day works and why it probably isn't what you think it is, listen to episode 934, Will Sinners Be Happy on Judgment Day? So we look at this, we see these dispensations, and this third dispensation has this reconciliation and this judgment, but it also has the great day of God's kingdom. And we were reading from Jeremiah 31, 29, and 30. Now let's jump down to Jeremiah 31, 34. Listen to the difference. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. 
for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. You see, there is a progression from being judged and being reconciled to God saying, I'll remember their sin no more. I'm putting it behind me because they've been reconciled. So it's a process. Remember, we talked about God's plan unfolds as a process. The scriptures show us different parts of the process as God's plan unfolds. And there are some scriptures we believe will apply in every age, like the moral code of the Ten Commandments, for example. They apply then, they apply now, and they're going to stand forever. So we've got, (laughs) there's a lot here. There's a lot to digest. Studying the Bible is not an easy thing, but it is a rewarding thing because it's about the mind of God. So Jonathan, Bible study secrets revealed, what do we have? We need to remember that the Bible is a book of long and diverse ages from the beginning of history. Understanding that all scriptures don't apply at all times is a critical step to successful Bible study and will help us ultimately see the big picture of God's plan. So that's the question. Do I want to see the big picture of God's plan or am I looking to verify a thought that I have in scripture? There's a big difference. If I want the big picture of God's plan, then I have to look to God's word to show it to me rather than trying to dictate what I'm seeing. So applying the right scripture to the wrong time frame will inevitably lead to our confusion. So let's pay attention to details. So far, we have context, meaning of words, and biblical timing. What about understanding Bible symbols? The Bible tells the story of all the ages of humanity. As we begin to understand its message, we need to realize that this sacred book is not meant to be easily understood until a future appointed time. Having biblical messages revealed through symbolic language is just one way the Bible's mystery can be uncovered. And so, again, folks, as we go through this next section, the, the, the thing to remember is Studying the Bible is difficult. It requires a lot of work. I have been studying the Bible since I was 16 years old. Uh, I'm, let's just say I'm over 60. How's that? <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it at that. So I've, I've spent a lifetime studying. And, and Jonathan and Julie, I can't tell you how much I still don't know. It's, it, it's, it's a continuous, continuous learning experience for me specifically. I get a lot of people that come up to me and say, you know, I don't understand the Bible. And I'll ask them, well, how long have you been trying to understand the Bible? You know, and it it turns out that they don't really put a lot of effort into it. If I want to be a brain surgeon, I don't read one book on the brain and think, oh, I can be a brain surgeon. It's, It's so much more magnified than something like that. Yeah, but if you read a book with pictures, you'd be great, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> See, the pictures the, would be helpful. <laughs> yeah, but the point is, it's a big deal. It's something very big. So, Jonathan, where where are we here? Well, let's get back to our original three questions. One, what do the words really mean? And two, what is the chronological timing of the verses I'm reading in relation to the question I am asking? And now, question three, am I reading symbolic language or literal language? That's a big big deal. Is it symbolic language or is it literal language? To set some groundwork for that, let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, we know the Bible can't be taken literally because it would make parts of the Bible 
preposterous. So in Daniel 2, for example, we're told about Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a statue where each material used was symbolic for a particular governmental empire. Jesus himself used parables and sometimes explained what the meaning behind the symbols and metaphors that he used. And the book of Revelation we know is loaded with symbols. So there's a lot of symbology here. What do we do with it all? Well, as students of the Bible, again, we just said this a few minutes ago, we need to let the Bible interpret itself. We need to let the Bible show us what it's telling us rather than us guessing or deducing or trying to, to put our thoughts into what we think it is or taking tradition and applying it. So how do we do that? Well, let's look at some verses that have a lot of symbols in them that might be difficult. Let's look at Psalm chapter 46, verses 1 to 5. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So if read literally and the mountains could slip into the heart of the sea, I mean, the tsunami that would cause would yeah. kill everyone. But the mountains then in the next verse are suddenly back from the sea because they quake at the earth's swelling pride. You know, the earth can't swell with pride. So in fact, there's a lot of scriptures that become utterly impossible or even silly when taken literally. Now, the symbols used here in this verses seem to be earth, mountains, sea, I see a river and a city. So we want to look closer at these. But my question is, unless someone tells you what these mean, are we just guessing what the meaning is? Are we randomly deciding what they mean? Well, see, see, the beauty of the answer to the question is, let's let the Bible tell us how to figure it out. And again, if we, uh, if we are blessed with God's Spirit helping us, we can look into the Scriptures and we can see things that say, here's what the Scriptures mean, but you have to dig for the meanings. Let's look at these symbols and see if we can establish some meanings by Scripture. So we're going to take these, these, these words, earth, mountain, city, uh, uh, earth, mountains, sea, river, and city, and, and look at them from a scriptural perspective as symbols. Now look, when you're looking at a symbol in Scripture, there's usually an association of the symbolic meaning with the literal meaning of the symbol. Earth, for instance. What is the earth? It is solid. It is stable, especially in contrast with the sea. So the meaning, the symbolic meaning, is likely going to have something to do, it's likely going to be associated with some kind of very strong, big stability. Let's look at a few other scriptures that help us figure out the symbol of earth. Psalm 33, 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Okay, let the earth fear the Lord. Can the earth actually fear the Lord? No. So we've got to, there's, there's something bigger here, but it says let the earth fear the Lord. It talks about the inhabitants. It's combining the earth and the inhabitants. Hold that thought, Psalm 66, verse 4. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. And again, you get the feeling that there's people involved in the earth in the singing of praises. And that is verified in Micah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, O peoples, all of you listen, O earth and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. So now it says, Hear, O peoples, 
O earth and all it contains. It's combining earth and peoples, earth and peoples. Now remember, earth has got this sense of stability and being solid, especially in contrast with a, with a restless sea. So, so Julian, when we look at earth and we look at these scriptures as a beginning point, and again, this is just touching the surface, what, what do you, what's the sense you get for, for the symbolism of earth in scripture? Well, as you've been saying, it refers to people, humankind, when they are stable or not troubled or agitated. And I think if we had time to bring in other scriptures, we could extend this to a stable social structure or society of people. And clearly scriptures like Psalm 33, 8 that Jonathan just read, where all the inhabitants of the world will stand in awe of God. That's certainly never happened before. Right. So going back to time frame, it makes sense that this would be speaking prophetically about the messianic age in the future. So the earth, the stable portion of mankind. Let's, let's hold on to that as an idea, as a thought that the scriptures gave us. Let's go to the symbolism of mountains. Now, what are mountains? Mountains are large, controlling, natural structures that impose their presence on man. If you've got this massive, massive mountain in front of you, your life is going to be dictated by that mountain. You can't just decide, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act like the mountain isn't there. Well, you just can't do that. It dictates your life to you. So think about that as we look at how to understand what mountains are in scriptural symbolism. We're going to look at Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, and we're going to come back to this verse a little bit later. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this idea of mountains, this mountain that is the biggest of all mountains, the chief of mountains, and it's imposing and it dictates how you live. It kind of gives you that sense of a governmental presence that is, is overwhelming. So when we look at mountains, especially in this Micah scripture, it really gives us the sense of mountain and government really work hand in hand. Uh, Jonathan, just thoughts on that. Exactly, Rick. Mountains represent governments, both the government of God and the governments of man. So it's in both areas. This is describing nations and God. And so, and that's an important aspect of this. It's helping us understand the mountain of the house of God versus the, the mountains of man. In the mountain of the house of God, here's a hint, is bigger, is stronger, and is more lasting, okay? So we've got earth, we've got mountains, let's look at sea. Now, what is the sea? It is this large, unstable, uncontrollable mass of water that has currents and things that we just cannot control. A great scripture that helps us understand the, 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 the symbolism of sea is Isaiah 57, 20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. All right, so Julie, let me just ask you, what the sea, what do you see in the sea in terms of symbolism? Well, this is an easy one, since the Bible just told us what the <laughs> restless sea represents. Um, here it says the wicked, but I believe bringing in other texts, we would see that in contrast to the stable earth, when restless seas are mentioned, it symbolizes restless humanity, agitated, loud. And that definitely applies to our present evil world with everyone clamoring for both their real and perceived rights. So you've got to see the restless masses of humanity, the mountains are governments, and the, the earth is this, this stable portion of mankind. We're starting to put it all together. Next piece of symbolism is a river. 
Now, literally, a river is a stream of water flowing from one place to another. Now, we note that rivers are, they're, what are they made of? They're made of water. Water in Scripture is very clearly a symbol of truth, especially the refreshing and purifying qualities of truth. We know that from John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. But a way to understand what a river means symbolically is to look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 and 17. Uh, Revelation chapter 22, 22. verses Sorry. 1 and 17. Sorry. Thank you. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. So you've got this river of the water of life and taking of this water of life. Again, Julie, this one's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It might be, but I would ask Jonathan, because it's his turn, oh. what is the river? Oh. <laughs> Thank you, Julie. You're so sweet. All right. Well, rivers represent stream of truth that refreshes, purifies, energizes, and brings knowledge of great joy. And see, this is why it's important to look at Bible symbols and interpret them from the Bible. It gives us the way to interpret them. Let's look at cities now. Now, a city. A city is a group of people living together with common geography, interests, and culture. Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 17 both describe cities. This is fascinating. Revelation, Jonathan, let's start with Revelation 21 verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So this holy city, this New Jerusalem, comes down from heaven, and it describes it as made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Doesn't that sound exactly like the true church the, the picture of, of Jesus and the Lamb and the marriage of the Lamb. It's just giving us a sense that this, 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 this city is coming down. So we're seeing it in the, in, in the context of the actual true church in this glorified state. Now let's go to Revelation. Hold that thought. Revelation 17, verse 18 is a very different story. The woman whom you saw is the great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. Well, Rick and Julie, in verse 5, this woman is Babylon the Great, the false church. And in ver- yeah, and you, you said in verse 5, it, it, it says that um, this woman is Babylon. So you have the false church represented as a city. You have the true church represented as a city. You've got a very clear picture. So, Julie, when we look at city here, thoughts? Well, it looks like it's the spiritual representation of government, whether right. it be the true church of Christ or the false church of Babylon. So we've got clear representation from the scriptures for all of these symbols. Now, let's go back to Psalm 46, verses 1 to 5, and read this verse with the symbols inserted into the verse so we can get some meaning from it. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth, the present social order, should change, and though the mountains, the governments of this world, slip into the heart of the sea, the restless masses of mankind desiring change through revolution and anarchy, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, Selah, there is a river, a source of truth and understanding, whose streams make glad the city of God, the true church, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. 
the beginning of God's messianic kingdom under Christ. Well, we need to be careful not to take every word in the Bible literally. It warps God's message and causes confusion. It does. And this 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 podcast today is for the purpose. It's a basic tutorial to say, let's look at Bible study with different eyes. To and the, the purpose is to draw out from the scriptures the mind of God and the will of God because it's the word of God, and let's not put ourselves in the middle of all of this. So Bible study secrets revealed. Jonathan, what do we have? There are many passages in the Bible that are written in very symbolic language. Fortunately, if we pay attention to detail in our study of the scriptures, we can find many keys to unlock the symbolism. Let's focus on letting the Bible tell us how to interpret its pages. Let the Bible tell me instead of me tell it. There's a novel idea, and it goes a long way if you want to understand the Word of God. Unlocking Bible symbolism by letting the Bible show us how. It's so important to stay out of the way so the Scriptures can actually speak for themselves. Context, the meaning of words, timing, and now Bible symbols. In light of all these keys, What about topical study? Okay. If we want to be true students of Scripture, we need to patiently realize that there are many moving parts to understanding biblical truth. We also need to observe how easy it can be to follow preconceived ideas about what we may expect the Bible to teach. Our studying is for the purpose of hearing the voice of God expressed through the Word of God. I don't want to hear the voice of Rick. I don't want to hear the ideas of Rick expressed through Scripture. I want to hear the voice of God expressed through the Word of God, period, end of statement. That's why we study the Bible. Where are we, Jonathan? Well, back to our original three questions. What do the words really mean? And what's the chronological timing of the verses I'm reading in relation to the question I'm asking? And am I reading symbolic language or literal language? So, Rick, can we put in what we've learned into practice with maybe a case study that you promised to circle back and answer that question that we started with? What does it mean uh, to be saved? What do I have to do to be saved? Okay, let's go back to that, and let's put all of this into play with that what seems to be very simple question. What does it mean to be saved? Now, many of us would say, oh, wait, I know, I know, pick me. You know, many of us would answer this question by going to a very specific Bible verse. We would say with, with great confidence, look, All you need to do is to call upon the name of Jesus. And I can tell you that because Romans chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 tell me that. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there you have it. That's all you need. Pause. Yeah, that sounds easy enough, but... I have another one for you. All we need is to accept salvation as a free gift of God. I'll give you Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I'll do you one better. All we need is the redemption of Jesus' blood. Romans 3.23.24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Or is all we need to confess Jesus and believe in our hearts, Romans 10, 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that was confess Jesus and believe in our hearts. 
But there's another one. All we need is repentance and faith. And here's where Mark 1, 14 to 18 comes in. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So now how can all these be true? You know, you can see why people don't understand how salvation works. So to review all we've discussed, first, we'd want to look at every scripture dealing with this one topic so we can see how they harmonize and try to understand what the original words mean, Hebrew for the Old Testament, Greek or Aramaic for the New Testament. Episode 1050 titled, What Does It Mean to Be Saved? is a detailed study on salvation. Yeah, about that specific question. But let's 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 go through it now very quickly to just put it on the table. Let's look at the words, the actual words for save and salvation. Let's start with that because this is part of the what we're talking about, the methodology for studying the Bible. So, Jonathan, the word save in Scripture in the New Testament, what does it mean? To save, that is, deliver or protect, literally or figuratively. Simple. Deliver or protect. Let's look at a couple of other uses of this word, Matthew 8, 25 for one. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. So there they are, they're on the boat, they think they're going to sink, Lord, save us. So that same word for save, believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, is here. Lord, save us, we perish. So it's that idea of protecting. So you, you've got that sense to it. Also, Matthew 9, 21 is another example of the word. For she said within herself, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. And you think, wait, so she's talking about being healed. What has that got to do with being saved? Well, it has to do with, with being delivered, being delivered from an illness. So you can see that this word has a lot of different shades of meaning, but the idea of being saved is to be taken out of a bad situation and protected or, or, or elevated somehow or other. Let, let's, let's hold on to that. The word for salvation in the New Testament is also a very basic word. Jonathan, what do we have for that? It means rescue or safety, physically or morally. All right, so this is used many times in the New Testament. Let's just take a look at two other uses as well, because we're trying to understand the words in relation to save and salvation, and the question, what does it mean to be saved? Acts 27, 34 uses that word salvation. Wherefore, I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health, for there shall not an hair fall from the head of any of you. Wait, I didn't hear salvation. The word health there is that <laughs> word. And you say, well, wait, how does that fit? Well, it means rescue, safety, physically or morally. So eat, you need nourishment. It's for your, it's for your rescue. It's going to take you out of this starving condition. So you can see the word has a lot of general meaning. Let's look at Romans 1.16 as another example. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Okay, now that's the typical meaning that we would look at, unto salvation, unto this rescue from, from, okay, let's ask that question. Rescue from what? What are we talking about? You know, what do you need to be saved? What are you being saved from? The scriptural answer to that not a traditional answer, not a denominational answer, but a scriptural answer to that is you're being saved from a death that has no resurrection. How do we know that? 1 Corinthians 15, 21, and 22. Since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. 
And we have referenced this particular subject many, many times, especially in some recent podcasts. The idea is by man came death. As an Adam, all die. When we look at what die means, it means to be lifeless. So when we say we're saved from what? We mean saved from a death that has no resurrection. And for more on death and the afterlife, you alluded to some episodes. Uh, try episode 1174 and 1175, Did God Make Heaven and Hell Humanity's Destiny? And episode 1206, Is a Near-Death Experience a Glimpse of Heaven? Okay, so it's important to understand what the scriptures are teaching us so we can understand the mind of God. And again, maybe the things that we're looking at and the things we're suggesting are not in accordance with what you might have heard before. We urge you to go to the scriptures using these methods of study to find the answers. And I'll tell you, uh, the, the, the show notes that we have with, with each of our podcasts can be really, really helpful because it lays out the topical study. It lays out the definitions of the words. It lays out the cross-references. It lays out the commentaries so we can put it in order. So we've got the words, okay? The words are simple in this case. What about the timing? Remember, when does it apply? When doesn't it apply? Well, let's take that timing aspect and apply it to this question, what do I need to do to be saved? Well, the way to this salvation that we're talking about in Scripture actually has two different paths. First, the first path is the one that most of us are familiar with, or we're probably all familiar with, and that's this hard road for believers right now. And that's delineated for us in Matthew 7, 13, and 14. And Jonathan, stop after 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Okay, so you've got a narrow gate, and then you say this broad way that leads to destruction, and there are many, many who will go there. It's like, oh, don't want to go there. That's the road to where? And a lot of people are going to answer, well, that's the road to hell. Folks, that's not what the Scripture says. It says it's the road to destruction. Look up the, the word for destruction, and it means annihilation. It means to take apart. It means to make so it doesn't work anymore. It has nothing at all to do with torture. So let's put the Scriptures on the pedestal that they belong and take all of the, the, the opinions of, 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 of traditions and take them off the pedestal because they don't belong there. It is the road to destruction. It's the road to death that has no resurrection. And then it talks about in verse 14, the gate of those who follow Christ. Jonathan, what is that? For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. So it is a hard road. The road of Christianity is not a road of relaxation and fun and games. It is a road of self-sacrifice. Why? Because that's the road Jesus walked. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, you follow where he went. You follow in his footsteps. So that's the call of the true church. The second part, the second path of salvation is also laid out for us in Scripture. And again, we're just barely going to touch on it here. But it talks about things being done in a specific order. And let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 23 and 24. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. It says each in his own order. And, you know, we're, we're using that part of this scripture to just help us understand that the plan of God unfolds in pieces. We talked about that earlier. Remember when we talked about the different ages and the, the age of the patriarchs and the age of the Jewish nation and the age of the, of, of the gospel and before that, the world that was, the, the, that ended with the flood. 
God's plan unfolds in stages, and the salvation for the world of mankind comes later. It comes after salvation for the church, everything in its own order. So now we understand that the timing of the salvation for the world is different than the timing for the salvation of those called to follow Christ. It's a timing thing, and the scriptures help us understand that. Now let's look at symbols to wrap this whole thing up. We had mentioned Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, just a a few minutes ago. Now we're going to look at Micah 4, verses 1 through 4, to put all of this together with the symbols that help us understand the salvation of the world. And it'll come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Ah, mountain. I know this one. Mountains (laughs) symbolically represent governments like we saw back in Psalm 46. And in the last days even tells us the timing of when this prophecy applies, the time when the gospel age ends and that messianic age of the kingdom is about to begin. Exactly, exactly. Continuing in Micah 4, verse 2, many nations will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Well, let me pause here a moment. Jerusalem is a literal city in Israel. God gave this land to the nation of Israel forever. Jerusalem is the capital of that land, and that is the physical center of the world government in God's future kingdom here on earth. Because that was God's promise from the beginning, God said to Abram, leave your father's house in the land that I will show you so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed from that land. We could find that back again in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And it's interesting. Here we see the unholy nations of ungodly people in this time frame after resurrection. Where are they? Well, they're not burning in hell. They're back on earth saying, let God teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his path. They are learning, rehabilitating, recognizing what they did wrong and making amends. The people are, it says, streaming to this chief of the mountains, this holy government. They're streaming to righteousness, Rick and Jonathan. The Bible prophecy can't come true if they're in eternal torment. Right. Continue in verse three. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Swords and spears, obvious symbols for the implements of war. So during this time, they're turned into implements of cultivation and peace. Nations never again train for war. Well, we know this sure hasn't happened any time in the history of mankind. So it has to be applied in its proper time frame in the future kingdom. And Isaiah 9:11 says, They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. And in verse four, each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So each will sit under the governance of the vine. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, talking about the true church, under his fig tree. Fig tree is a biblical symbol of the nation of Israel. You see the physical nation of Israel blessing, just like the Abrahamic promise, and the spiritual nation of Israel, the church, blessing, just like the Abrahamic promise. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jonathan, let's wrap this up. Bible study secrets revealed. What do we have? Biblical salvation through Jesus is being pulled from the clutches of certain and permanent death and being given a new opportunity for life everlasting. This happens in two basic stages. 
first to the called out ones and then through the called out ones for the benefit of everyone else. So we're, we're looking at this and we are, we are taking this and putting it all together. So he, here's the thing, folks, as we wrap this up, it's, it's really a simple equation. You know, the question that we asked today was, are there secrets to studying the Bible? And the answer is no, there are no secrets to studying the Bible, but there are methods to studying the Bible. There is an attitude that has to go with those methods for studying the Bible. And then there's God's spirit that can help to guide us as we try to take those methods and put them in place and have the attitude of being willing to listen to whatever it is the Bible is teaching us and not put our will into the Holy Word, but instead let the Holy Word override our own will. Yes, it's methods and attitude and it's God's spirit. And this is the way that we can learn what the Word of God is, what the will of God is, and what the plan of God is. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channel, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Now, coming up next week, this is interesting. Next week, do we really have free will? Do we really, really have free will? Well, talk to you next week.